0: Welcome to the show, my friends. You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating, Episode 7. Today, we're talking with Marissa Sapo, who is the founder and clinical director of Aurora Center in New York City. It's an outpatient mental health clinic specializing in the treatment of eating disorders. They provide individual and group treatment, and they also have an IOP and PHP. So an IOP is an intensive outpatient, and PHP is... A partial hospitalization program. Those are different levels of care. Aurora treats the whole gamut of eating disorders and co occurring mental health issues. Aurora has a team of experts treating children, adolescents, and adults. Marissa is a board certified psychoanalyst, a certified eating disorder specialist, and supervisor. She is part of faculty and a supervisor and member to the board. At the Center for Study of Anorexia Bulimia in New York City, the oldest nonprofit training and treatment center for eating disorders in that country. Marissa has presented on eating disorders nationally and internationally at major conferences. So, Renfrew, IADEP, and Australia and New Zealand Academy for Eating Disorders. She is the co-chair of the special interest group, Psychodynamic Psychotherapy through the Academy for Eating Disorders. I am really excited to share my conversation with you. Let's get started. Let's talk about boundaries today. I mean, we've had conversations about this, so kind of wish we would have recorded those too because (laughs) it's really interesting, but this is just my experience I've never met somebody who didn't struggle in some capacity with boundaries, especially somebody who is struggling with an eating disorder. So we definitely have to talk about this.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I always tell my patients, my students, my favorite B word is boundaries. (laughs) Um, (laughs) they're, They're essential. They come up in every dimension of your life. They actually, if you think about it, they actually start in a way, kind of at conception or at birth, that that's the beginning of our sense of boundaries. And, you know, to your point, there are a lot of different types of boundaries that people don't, I think, always think about. I think a lot of people maybe understand generally physical boundaries, right? You need your personal space, you know, don't touch me, get away from me. Definitely when we're little and we have siblings, like, ah, you're in my special seat, get out of here, right? (laughs) Or you're on a, a bus or a subway and somebody's sitting a little too close to you in the seat next to you, right? Yeah, so I think we, we can about, all relate to that. Oh my goodness, right? So we know all about physical boundaries and I'm happy to say some more things about that and why that's important. We have emotional boundaries and I think many of your listeners are going to be somewhat familiar with that too, anybody in therapy or actually anyone in the 21st century with TikTok or Twitter is starting to get a sense of emotional boundaries. You know, we also have time boundaries, which is something I kind of alluded to before, you know, that our time is ours and it's valuable. And figuring out a way to set parameters around that at work, at home, at school, socially is important too. Sexual boundaries, of course, which I think to some extent, most people have a sense of. Interesting. And I think this is true for all the boundaries. And I think this is true actually for a lot of things in life. Most people seem to connect or understand or be aware of boundaries on the extreme end of things. They know when something's really, really egregious and that's bad and that shouldn't happen, but they have a harder time in that middle nuanced area so sexual boundaries and physical boundaries actually are good examples of that that there you know there's a lot of in between between the worst thing happening and things that just shouldn't happen and kind of can make you feel yucky there's also intellectual boundaries that we can think about too about our ideas there's material boundaries around stuff i just love to use those sibling examples cuz boy you know we we can get real You know, if you have a sister like I do, why'd you take my shirt? Get out of my closet, right? You know, there can be possessiveness around our thing, um, things like that, right? So those are probably around six main boundaries I would think of as things that, you know, we could talk about a little bit today.
0: Yeah. I didn't even think about it that way because when you break it down in that way, it seems like there are so many more things that we have to almost worry about, (laughs) (laughs) Even thinking about it a little bit more generally, because we can go into specifics either soon or kind of weave it into the rest of the conversation. Why is asserting your own boundaries really important? And I guess more specifically for relationships, for the health of a relationship, and also for your own mental health.
1: Absolutely. Great question. So, you know, the idea of boundaries in general, they are just necessary, and I'm not sure everybody understands that they are necessary the same way it's necessary to breathe, the same way water is a life force. They're necessary in order for human beings to relate to each other and to relate to their system. If there are no boundaries, okay, relatedness and relationships or healthy ones are impossible because what can happen is we become one, there's a merger. We become lost in the other person, right? So there are so many ways that can happen. For example, if you think about something like codependency and romantic partnerships, right? That's a total merger. There's no separation between me and you. Everything you feel, I feel. You're upset, I'm upset too. Oh no, this is scary. I have to make sure you feel better real fast because you feeling bad is making me feel bad, right? In child and parent relationship, right? Actually, if you go back even to infancy, part of where all this begins, right? An infant really doesn't have a concept of psychic separation from mother. They only exist because mother exists. And developmentally, over time, the goal, of course, is to develop a separate sense of self, and that is done in part through these boundaries. But without those boundaries. We have no idea where we start and stop, where the other person starts and stops, and then this contributes to a whole host of problems. And there's tons of you know, clinical terms for that, but in the practical, it's just things like people taking advantage of us, or a lot of conflicts, or trouble limit setting, or giving more than we want to, or having people harm us in some way, or harming other people.
0: Yeah, so this is when it gets really tricky because something that maybe originally looks kind of mean, or if you're looking at it from the outside, it may look mean, which is the setting the boundary, even if we're talking about initially from mom to baby or throughout the life between any two people, it's actually really helping the relationship thrive. And so that becomes kind of tricky and ironic.
1: Uh. Rachel, you are reading my mind. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I agree completely. And this is another area where boundaries are just tough. I hear so often from parents with little ones or teens and from other people and adults that setting boundaries feels mean. Saying no to people feels mean. Now, that in and of itself to me is a diagnostic. If you feel badly (laughs) about asserting your own needs, saying no to something, drawing a line of demarcation and saying, this is what's okay and this is what's not okay. That really tells me something about you. I think, you know, I use a lot of parent examples. I think about, and I'm sure, you know, you, you've used this too, or you can relate, you know, when we have a, a young kid and it's it's bedtime and it's, please, mommy, can I just stay up for a little bit more, you know, another half an hour? Can I just watch a show? One more story? And, you know, there are children, we love them so much. We don't want to see them suffer an ounce of pain. They're so sweet. They're, you know, of course we want to stay up with them too. We want to do more with them. The kind thing is to assert that boundary, right? The kind We feel the mean thing is to say, no, no, I'm so sorry. We did our two stories. It's time for bed. That's what we think is mean. The kind thing is to say, You know, I I know it's so hard. I know you want to read another story. We did two good stories. I'm going to sit with you for a few more minutes and tomorrow we can read, you know, the other story. The boundary has to be held by the adult in that context because we know as a grown-up that 6 a.m. and 7 a.m. daughter is going to do much better with her breakfast, with her food, with her day if she gets the right amount of sleep. And so we pay on the front end a little bit in terms of a disappointment to have something better on the long end, right? To have better self-regulation, to be able to tolerate a no, to be able to understand that sometimes, even though it's disappointing or uncomfortable, we can't have everything that we want all the time in the way that we want it.
0: Yeah. So going along those lines, the tolerating disappointment made me think about when you kind of almost teach the kid how to tolerate something that's a disappointment when they're a kid. Then something that happens when they're a lot older won't trigger like an adult size temper tantrum because they've been equipped with this and they're only equipped with it if you teach them as a parent how to do that which is also so hard because they'll probably throw some sort of tantrum. And then internally, it's like, uh uh-oh, did I do something wrong?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, and this may be painting with too broad of a brushstroke, so everyone is is free to excoriate me for this. (laughs) But in my practice, at least, I'll say anecdotally, I have seen tremendous difficulty in recent years with parents being able to tolerate feelings, being able to tolerate their own feelings and being able to tolerate feelings in their children. And then what ends up happening is exactly that. When they try to set a boundary and the child or the adolescent has a bad reaction, they start panicking and thinking, oh no, I did something wrong. This is bad. This is not how it's supposed to be. And then they start backpedaling, And, you know, the, um, The end of that is doesn't help anybody, doesn't help the child co-regulate, doesn't help the child manage through their feeling. doesn't help them manage frustration tolerance. And it teaches the child also that if they have a certain kind of reaction, they can get a different outcome from mom and dad, that boundaries and rules are really fluid. They don't, you know, that's not a real thing. (laughs) Like That line can move.
0: Yeah, which is detrimental on uh, so many levels. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Speaking of the parents, you know, obviously it's a hard job, but even just going along the lines of why it's hard that we come in as parents Mm -hmm. with our own stuff. And that's kind of like almost passed down in a way. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit to this, how the parent stuff kind of gets passed down.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So and again, I first of all, I, I don't want this to at all come off as parent bashing. I think personally, I think being a parent is the most important job in the world. A million people would say, how can that be the most important job? The most important job is to be a rocket scientist or a president or whatever guess who makes the people that become presidents? Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: <laughs> Did you ever bad. watch that advertisement? I don't know what it was an advertisement, something about Mother's Day, about everyone interviewing for this job. It's 24 seven. There's no t- paid time off. There's no benefits. And then at the end, they come <laughs> out and they, that's that's a mom and they're like, oh yeah, um, it's, re- it's really powerful.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I haven't seen that. That's so funny though. I love that. I love that. And oh, One more thing. I usually say this when I teach classes, but I'll make sure to say this here. I use the word mother. I want anybody who's listening to insert primary caregiver. Mother to me does not have to be biological cisgender female mom. I use that word mostly because I'm a trained psychoanalyst, and that's usually what comes up in all the literature. But please insert the word you know father poppy tanta whomever that's it's the primary caregiver really that i'm speaking about when i say mother so i guess going back a little bit to all this you're exactly right parents bring with them into their parenting all of their own stuff they bring their own selves they bring their own histories they bring in their own relationships they bring in the ways that they were parented Right? I happen to work, and I believe you do too, I happen to work with a lot of folks who have family histories of being in the Holocaust. And we know mm-hmm. that there are a lot of reverberation of trauma that run through, through the family lines. And you see that show up in a lot of different ways. I would also add that is not exclusive to Jewish families. There are plenty of families, I would certainly say Black Americans, who have that same kind of transgenerational transmission of trauma. So what we see is we see a mommy and a daddy or mommy and a mommy or parents. We see caregivers, either one or more who come into this with their own ideas, their own feelings, their own complexities, who are all just trying to do their best. Then we put in a little baby who can't communicate, who can't say, this is what I want. This is what I need, right? And parents just try to do their best. And where it can start to go awry is when parents actually don't have their own good sense of self, don't have their own good self boundaries, don't know who they are and what they need and how to be separate from their child. That when their baby is crying for hours and hours, instead of maybe feeling, gosh, my baby really needs some soothing right now. I'm I'm exasperated. I need to call reinforcements. I can't take this for another second, right? They, and, and again, that's also a luxury. They might be feeling my baby doesn't like me. What's wrong with me? Why can't I get my baby to calm down? They might be getting angry at the baby. And not because they don't love the baby, but because of their own you know, kind of psychological stuff. And I think over time, you know, this is just one minute example, but over time, these are the kinds of dynamics that can start to develop. There are, you know, again, I won't go so detailed with this, but what I see a lot of, especially in eating disorder work, is I see either disengaged families, what I call disengaged families that are really cold and unsupportive and withdrawn and isolated and very rigid, not flexible, very rigid rules, very harsh, a lot of demands. that's not so good. <laughs> I also see, you know, enmeshed families, which are sort of the opposite or a high expressed emotion family. These families are inflexibly close. They're over-involved in people's lives. And I, I laugh a little bit because, you know, my my family is, you know, we're all tracking each other on find my, you know, find my sister (laughs) on the iPhone or whatever. So, you know, it takes one to know one, I'll say, right? Yes.
0: Although there is a new normal, not that that's okay, but there is a new normal.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So this kind of over-involvement, a total lack of boundaries, a lack of autonomy, encouragement of codependency, lack of privacy, that's a huge one. Parents going through their kids' stuff regularly. And I'm not talking about, you know, your six-year-old who comes home from school and you got to check the backpack and make sure there's not a week old sandwich in there, right? I'm talking about a parent who is actively and regularly going through your child's stuff, going through their room, opening their drawers, looking at what they're writing, reading their diaries, right? In in that space, basically what's happening from parents is an intolerance for separateness and an intolerance for different opinions, right? Parents don't know how to navigate this difference. And usually this is also coming, again, from a place of anxiety. They're afraid. They're afraid it's going to lead to loss. It's not that they don't want their kids to grow up and be their own little people. It's that they're fearful that in that separateness, they will lose them.
0: You mentioned two sides of the spectrum, the Mm -hmm. poor boundaries that don't really have any boundaries and then the poor boundaries that are kind of too rigid. So I guess both of them are different situations, but in those situations, if you have a family or a parent that is one or the other, how does that then affect the baby when they're an adult?
1: It's It's a really, really good question. The short answer is one, the outcomes vary widely and two, sometimes the outcomes can be. Not so great. They can, first of all, with more enmeshed families or families where there's what we call emotional or covert incest, that's a very scary term. I can explain that later. <laughs> <laughs> Don't everyone freak out, but but it is a real thing. You know, first of all, in those kinds of families, we tend to see higher rates of depression, anxiety, eating disorders, and difficulty as adults in romantic partnerships right? Basically, a lot of all the things that we want to go well, we tend to see higher rates of it not going so well, right? Again, we also want to think that caregivers are the initial template for a child, right? To understand what a, a good, healthy, emotional, psychological boundary is. So if that template is off cue a little bit, then it's going to be much harder for them, you know, down the roll and down the road. And so we have things like identity confusion, role confusion, problems with responsibility, a desire or a belief that one has to meet the needs of the other person all the time. I personally see that come up so frequently with folks with eating disorders. You know, in a way, I, I listen, I think every trait we have is a two-sided coin, like there are ways it can work for us and ways it, works it can work against sure. us. So on the one hand, sometimes it's great to be a really attuned person, to really be aware of what the other person is feeling and wanting and needing. What I find a lot of times with folks with eating disorders is they experience that in a hypervigilant way and in a way filled and loaded with guilt and responsibility that they have to constantly be attuning themselves to the other person to make sure that that person's okay. A lot of, you know, kind of emotional caretaking there, right? So overly rigid boundaries, you know, maybe you're constricting family relationships and limiting families' access to one another, right? Versus, a confusion between generations. Who's the parent? Who's the child? Who's in charge? If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. I'm thinking as we're talking about this, this might be jumping a little too far ahead, but just because maybe people are thinking about this now. Okay. So this was my situation when I was growing up. This is my family situation. I can't possibly expect anyone to change, nor can I expect my past to change. And so what the hell do I do now? I can't get a romantic relationship. My friends are annoyed by me. I'm struggling with my relationship with food. Like what now? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And I think also in, you know, in my experience as a psychoanalyst for almost 20 years, I'm really dating myself It's almost here. <laughs> 20
0: years. Oh God. It's wow. Real
1: scary. I know. I know. That's pretty awesome. Um, Thank you. Thank you. This is actually a question that I find comes up a lot in therapy. I will find that after a certain period of time, anywhere from a few weeks to a few months, folks will start to develop the insight. They'll develop awareness. They'll they'll start making links and they'll go, "Oh, gosh, yeah, you're you're right now that I think about it." Our family really is enmeshed. And I guess it's not so normal that, you know, when my dad had a bad day at work, he would text me and ask me to be his, you know, emotional support person, right? Um, So on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And now what do I do with that? This feels awful and yucky. Change it, change it. I don't want this anymore. (laughs) So it's sort of a, you know, a short and a long-term answer. The long-term answer, of course, and I always say all my biases. I'm a psychoanalyst. I'm a therapist. My my bias here, here is preaching
0: to the choir. Then
1: <laughs> my bias here is you need to do the work. That's the first part. You need to be in therapy. You a lot of times in this when you're at this place, it also means that you don't really know your full self. You know who you are as you exist in the context of other people. Sure, you may know things that you like or don't like, but really to fully know who you are and what motivates you and how your mind works and what you need that is that has to happen in a therapeutic relationship if there has been a lifetime of boundary violations right so that's sort of the long end of it is that you you really need to do some some therapy of course i recommend doing you know more formal therapy you can also do some self-therapy you can do some exploration you can you know do some journaling you know there are things i'm happy to then to listeners if they want to start exploring that. In the the here and now... Yeah, maybe we can...
0: I don't know if you have some of these resources already on your website. We can always link to them if there are some things that are popping up for you in the show notes.
1: Perfect, perfect. In the short term, sort of here and now, I kind of would have folks go through these six different boundaries, right? So in those physical boundaries, first, I just start to notice. What boundaries do you notice having difficulty setting? Are are some coming up more than others? Is it all of them, right? Physical boundaries, your need for personal space. It's okay to let people know that you do not want to be touched or that you need more space. It's also okay to say you're hungry or you need some rest, right? And again, a lot of this, so much of life and therapy, I say is simple, but not easy. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you a bunch of things that sound really simple, And I know that in practice, it's not easy to do. And it's not easy to do because of our unconscious and because our lifetime template of doing something different. And that's also where I think the therapy can be helpful, right? But healthy physical boundaries are things like, actually, I'm really tired. I need to sit down right now. I can think of an example, a patient of mine who every year goes on a big trip with their family and they're an adult person now and the parents for whatever reason they're very excited about this trip and they have got the family from you know 8 a.m to 10 p.m walking all over doing you know not stopping for breaks not stopping for food this is a person with an eating disorder history and it's taken a long time to be able to assert their needs and to say to these parents i'm tired i have to sit down i'm really hungry I know that you don't want to stop for food. I know that you're happy to walk around for another six hours without eating. I need to stop and do it. Now, that took a lot of, again, simple, but not easy. Took a lot of emotional development to get to that point, to be able to say to mom and dad, I need and want something different than what you need and want. A lot of times I will tell people to use, I feel I need. That's, I think that's a really good way of, of kind of introducing something. I feel blank. I need blank. You know, other physical boundary things are. Actually, I'm not a big hugger. I'm more of a handshake person. <laughs> you know, something like that.
0: And you can don't blame go in it on COVID these days, which is nice. <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly, exactly, exactly. Please don't go into my room without asking first. You know, things like that. You know, emotional boundaries, of course, much trickier. I think. Physical boundaries are more obvious to define, right? Like, don't touch me. Don't go in my room. Emotional boundaries, different, right? I'm having a really hard time and I need to talk. Are you in a place right now where you feel you can listen to me? Because I really need some focused attention or another kind of emotional boundary. And I will personally say this one is hard for me. I really can't talk right now. <laughs> 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 this is not a good time for me, right? Let's just think about the age that we live in. We've got our smartphones. We've got a million things pinging at us all the time. We have people that we love. We have our best friends. We have you know Snapchat, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, texting, ping, 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 Twitter. We have come to believe that we need to and should respond to all of those things in real time, that is just not the case. And this one, I think people have a real hard time with. You are going to be tasked with being your own gatekeeper of your emotional space and your emotional time. You do not have to open that Twitter message. You do not have to open that text message and respond right in that moment. I personally also think texting sometimes can be tricky or emails too in part because you never know where somebody is or what they're doing when you send them that message, right? So if you're going to send them a tough message or sometimes even a great exciting message, you don't know if they're driving or at the grocery store or they're you know, with grandma or something and they're receiving it. And then they're kind of holding the bag. They have to do something with it or they feel they have to do something with it in that moment. And so that's to me, a really critical place of an emotional boundary of, I really can't attend to this right now. I can't you know, talk about this right now. I think some examples where emotional boundaries get violated are a lot of those invalidating experiences, right? Dismissing and criticizing feelings, asking questions that aren't appropriate for the relationship. That oh, that's a big be, one. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me your thoughts on that one.
0: Yeah. I'm thinking about what's popping into my mind first is sharing too much too soon. So if somebody goes on a first date or they just met a friend of a friend and all of a sudden they're either best friends or they're sharing their deepest, darkest secrets. And to me, there are red flags going off everywhere with that.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I am going to send you actually... I have a bunch of little red flags I keep in my office. Oh no, that when, no you don't. <laughs> I do, that when people say things. I just hold it up and I wave it and I'm like, red flag. Um, but, but that's a really, it's a really good point. And I think sometimes people are emotionally dumping or oversharing because they're anxious or because they're desperate to connect or because they think that's the right way to do it or a million other reasons. But again, in the space of a boundary, and this has to be taught and learned over time. Part of boundaries requires trust, okay, when we're talking about interpersonal boundaries. And I really try to reinforce with people, and, it's, and my work is cut out for me because the social landscape has changed so much. Somebody you have met on the internet, on Twitter, on Instagram, even if you've been chatting with them for however many months, you still really don't know them. So, they are not, they should not have full access to you. They're not in that, you know, deeper layer of trust. They're in an outer layer of trust. And so, your boundary with them should correlate with your level of trust in them and the relationship, right? When you go on a first date with somebody, even if they're recommended to you, even if they're a friend of a friend, someone fixed you up, even if you didn't meet them on the internet or even if you did you don't know them. So your level of trust with them should be really minuscule. Not that you should be going in assuming the worst, but you should not go in assuming that you can give them full trust and open access, right? We, we want to give access to us and our emotional life and ourselves as it's appropriate to do in the setting and with the person, and as trust and safety develops. I I think, to your point, I've seen a lot of people get burned that way. Either the the date goes terribly, or they end up getting rejected, or it's all fine for a little while, and then it kind of blows up. They're, They're left with bad feelings. They feel ashamed.
0: Yeah. And, and to your point about how it then goes badly to kind of flip it and talk about the other person who's on the receiving side, you know, to talk about their experience and how does a person on that end assert their boundaries when somebody is so clearly, um, not to be melodramatic, but violating the boundaries, what do you, what do you do about it? If you're that person?
1: It's it's really hard. And again, I'm going to, you know, I don't know if this will be totally politically correct to say in this day and age, yeah, I say. also yeah, I'm <laughs> going to go wild. I also do feel that there is still a gender difference. I do believe that cis women, cis girls are socialized and trained from a very young age even though we've made a lot of progress, but we are socialized and trained from a very young age to be helpers, to be listeners, to be patient not to hurt anybody's feelings, right? To you know, we're the ones that are supposed to accommodate around other people's needs. Mm-hmm. And so in those situations, I think, and again, it's a bit of a generalization, it's harder for women to say, "I'm not comfortable with talking about this. Please stop." That in my experience, a lot of folks just sort of sit there in that discomfort. And then afterwards are kind of calling their friends or their therapist and saying, oh, my gosh, you can't believe what this person said to me. It was so uncomfortable. Right. I think there are varying degrees of what could happen in those situations and then varying responses. If it's something a little bit uncomfortable, I like to do the most benign approach of Trying to change the subject very subtly, right? Sometimes, if it's some emotional outpouring, I might just say a very gentle "Thank you for sharing that with me. I I appreciate that you felt comfortable sharing that with me." And then try to pivot away, right? I might try to say something if it's a little bit, you know, heavier than that. Wow, my goodness, this sounds like a really big important thing that happened to you. I would love to hear about it more, but maybe when I have the time and attention to focus on it, let's, we're just getting to know each other a little bit today. Let's, let's try to just enjoy our meal or our coffee or something like that. If it's something really egregious, and I have done this with people before, actually, unfortunately, I've had to do this. I, I will flat out say things like, please do not speak to me that way. Mm-hmm. You can't, you cannot talk to me that way. Can I'm you give here. an
0: example of, of how that would come to be? Because yeah, I've also been in that sure. position, mostly professionally, sure. but... In... <laughs> of, course, of course,
1: that's the one coming to mind for me, but I have a few different examples I can think of. The so one professionally, I can think of, you know, a parent um, sort of being demanding or rude to me or, you know, saying something unkind. And, you know, while of course the analyst in me can understand that they're anxious and frustrated and it's not really about me one thing that is really essential and this is true if you're a therapist it's true in other parts of your humanness we are not meant to be toilets for people to dump their stuff into Mm
0: -hmm. so you,
1: you can be angry and you can be anxious and you can have all of those feelings But you cannot treat me like a garbage receptacle for all those bad feelings, right? So, you know, I have had an occasion where a parent has said something a little bit over the line. And I said, just like that, please do not speak to me like that. You cannot talk to me like that. I'm being respectful of you. I understand you are upset. Let's take a step back. That's something like this, right? I can think of something and I don't know how much this maybe comes up for listeners, I can think about certain situations for adolescents or 20s, 30s in a dating or a texting or a Snapchat kind of sphere where they get either unsolicited photos or they're being asked to say things or share things sort of over the sexual line, at which point I I really encourage people to say, I'm not comfortable with that, please stop, right? Or sometimes I will say, I don't engage in sexual conversations with people that I don't know. Like we're not there yet.
0: Yeah, that does sound a lot harder to do than it is to say. Much harder, (laughs) much harder, much harder. I mean, we we keep talking about how it's really hard and how a lot of this was developed. But what do you think makes setting boundaries so difficult for some people to do? Um, And I guess where my mind is going specifically is like, how is it intertwined with our sense of self, or even self-esteem, and the complexities of
1: that—it's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a really, really, really good question, right? So, is there but, even
0: an, an answer? <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's there, of course, there is, and it's sort of a, a complicated answer. And I'll try to be—you know—I'm so loquacious. But I'll, I'll try to be as productive as I can. You're um,
0: fine. <laughs>
1: So I think that part of it, again, all of this really develops very early on where an infant or a child learns that in order to be loved and accepted and seen and taken care of and have their needs met in some way and maintain a connection to the object or a connection to the parents, they need to behave in X, Y, Z way. They need to be responsive and empathic to other people's needs. They need to be overly generous. They need to be overly attentive, right? And so underlying all of that are fears such as this person's going to leave me. If I don't you know, acquiesce to everything they want and need, they'll be furious with me. They'll freeze me out. They'll cut me off. They'll break up with me. They'll say mean things to me, you know, and even under the core of that sometimes is the belief of I'm not lovable, right? Uh, Under a lot of these boundary issues are, you know, related to low self-esteem, right? There is, again, self-esteem is part of that sense of self. (laughs) Your sense of self is defined only in the context of another person and is not separate and not well-defined. My goodness that means your self esteem gets regulated not by yourself but it gets regulated by all of the outside things your eating disorder regulates your self esteem if you're not thin enough ooh wow you feel really bad about yourself you know if your boyfriend tells you you're being a jerk because you were 10 minutes late and he can't deal with your crap anymore up oh, there goes your self esteem right that it's hard to hold on to that sense of self right So I I think that, you know, a huge part of all of this is rooted in a sense of healthy self-esteem, lovability, and a belief that in a healthy relationship, there is room for you to be a separate person with separate thoughts and feelings and needs, and that the other person can tolerate that separateness and that difference. And that that's not going to enrage them or push them away or cause them to abandon you. I think the, the big things that seem to come up, you know, in my practice are being afraid of, of loss, being afraid of being rejected and lost and not being cared for and being seen in some way as bad.
0: Yeah. Just to kind of follow up with that. If worst case scenario, they did leave you because of, I don't know, coming half an hour late or saying something assertive then that makes the relationship itself questionable at best. And not to say that it isn't a difficult experience, but you know to try to avoid this loss that most of the time won't happen, but if it did, is an- another problem in and of itself.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. If I had my red flag, I'd be waving it right now. <laughs> uh, <you> know, <laughs> in, in really healthy relationships, this is another thing people forget because we're, we're used to seeing sort of a um, romanticized version, I guess, in the media of what a relationship looks like. Healthy relationships are not conflict-free, okay? Healthy friendships, healthy partnerships, they're not conflict-free. Healthy relationships manage the conflict in healthy ways, right? So if you have somebody, if you're in a relationship with somebody and some conflict happens, and it blows up the whole relationship that's a diagnostic that's a sign that something is not right in that relationship right and you know look certainly it's reasonable to try to look and consider what your role may have been in that moment and that's different than excoriating yourself or assuming that you are the problem that you are you know, the one to blame for this person's reactions and responses. And I would also add that if, if a relationship is ending in that kind of a way and the other person is unwilling to explain or talk to you or think it through, that's another diagnostic.
0: Yeah. I'm thinking about healthy relationships and like you said, they're not void of conflict. The point is to have a certain level of communication. Hopefully it's a healthy communication. But all parties involved are asserting themselves, which is hard to do because you can only be you. You can't be the other person. But even going back to what we were talking about, social media or texting, that if you are the person who is receiving the message to ignore it or... Well, I guess, yeah, ignore is a good example. Then three weeks later, the person is like, what's going on? Why do you ignore me? The most effective communication would be, I'm sorry, I'm busy now, or I don't want to talk about this specific thing, but that has to go both ways.
1: Absolutely. 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 And, you know, you're, you're bringing up one of my most favorite, least favorite things actually, which is around. I don't know if you're familiar, probably familiar with the Gottmans, John and Julie Gottman. They're really big relationship researchers, right? Yeah. And they talk about- If somebody isn't
0: familiar with them, um, maybe just talk about for a second. And I can also link their site to in the show notes so that people can learn more, but just like brief synopsis and who they are.
1: Sure, sure. John and Julie Gottman, such an interesting couple, by the way. They both were divorced and then met, I think, randomly at a gas station diner or something and fell in love and they've been married for decades. That
0: I isn't didn't that, know.
1: Isn't that wow. fascinating? Isn't that fascinating? Nice Jewish couple. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and they have founded, they're both psychologists, and they have founded the Gottman Institute. And they have spent decades researching partnerships and marriage and what works and what doesn't work. And one of the things you know that they've identified is sort of, they call them the four horsemen of the ap- apocalypse, right? It, these are predictors that they, you know, relationships are, I don't want to say doomed, but in a not so good place. And one of the biggest ones they identified was what they call stonewalling. Right, and that's kind of what you're you're getting at. And I have I have repeated this so so often with my patients. If you think back to when you were a little kid, I love those little kid examples. Grade school. From my perspective, the worst thing that could happen to you in your friend group in your peer group, it wasn't when somebody you know twisted your arm and gave you a burn, you know, a skin burn. It wasn't something. It wasn't like when you weren't picked for recess. It was the silent treatment when your friend right? When your friends got together and you would be standing right there in front of their face and, you know, two friends would be going, I don't know, do you hear something? I don't hear anything, you know? And you'd be trying to get in, trying to get in. So the the silent treatment, aka stonewalling, right? Withdrawing to convey your disapproval, to distance yourself is one of the most psychologically damaging things you can do in a relationship. Parents do this to kids, kids do this to parents partners do this to each other and it's real bad <laughs> it's real bad and you know so what we want to be able to do in those circumstances is to say i need space instead of shutting somebody out you know and kind of you know going for the throat i guess um when when you stonewall someone when you give them the silent treatment it does serve as a punishment and i understand why people do it and over time it really really erodes the relationship. And so figuring out how to manage conflict in a healthy way is essential for the survival and health of any relationship, whether that's parent and kid, that's peers, that's work, you know, work relationships, or that's romantic partnerships, right? You know, trying to, I, I always get people to try to remember you are on the same team. You're not on two different teams playing against each other you're on the same team how do you get back to that same team you know can you soften your startup can you do the i feel i need right can you take some responsibility can you describe what's happening some of these are even sort of dbt skills right can you make some attempts at a repair can you soothe each other you know self soothe and soothe each other can you compromise can you address emotional injuries one one huge thing i say all the time and this is you know more for sort of romantic partnerships is if you are committed to each other i have very few rules in therapy but one is you cannot threaten the relationship you are just not allowed to do that if you want to be in the relationship if if you're trying to do this for the long haul you are not permitted to ever say something like you do this one more time and i'm out or that's it i've had enough i'm packing my back right it, it puts the other person on the defensive. It totally erodes the safety and integrity of that relationship, right? So we can't threaten the very thing that's supposed to be holding us together, right? We have to find a different way to express, I'm so furious. I'm feeling desperate. I need something else here. And sort of related to that, I, I say everyone is allowed to be angry in relationships, and that's all right. Sometimes the other person, needs to know that you still love them, right? So just like with the, we don't want to freeze people out, freezing people out, silent treatment, not good. Having personal space, that's okay. I think a helpful way to take that personal space, remind the person you're still connected to them. Remind them you still are there, you still love them. Mommy still loves you. I'm just feeling very frustrated right now with the behavior that just happened. I need to take a moment in the other room and you can even give your child a hug, right? Give them a hug. I just need a few minutes. Okay. And then we'll talk about this in a little while, right? With your partner. I love you. You just made me totally crazy. <laughs> let me go. Just let me go outside. I need to, you know, take a walk, but we'll, you know, we're going to figure this out. You're my, we are, you're my number one. We'll figure this out. But, It's that freezing out, that annihilating, that cutting off. And again, a lot of those behaviors have roots in things parents maybe did very early on.
0: Right, which speaks to the fear of loss of the person. And so by saying this, you're actually able to have the conversation as opposed to both parties just freaking out. And then it just worsens from there. Exactly. And I think also just to reiterate your point on this is for the health of your long-term relationships. And that even if something seems kind of decent in the short term, we need to make sure that it's sustainable. And so these ways of communicating have to be something that is actually healthy for its sustainability. So I love that. I can talk to you all day, obviously, (laughs) just for the sake of time, we'll wrap up here. But before we do... Where can our listeners find you?
1: They can find us at auroracenternyc.com. A-U-R-O-R-A-C-E-N-T-E-R-N-Y-C.com. Yes, I think that's where they can find me. I am there.
0: Awesome. We'll link to that in the show notes as well.
1: Also find us, I guess, on Twitter and Instagram at
0: auroracenternyc. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. If you enjoyed today's episode and you know someone who may as well, please share it. Not only does it help us reach more people, it really makes my day to know that this show is making a difference. All right. Talk next time.